0: Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news To help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time. So listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing. So best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello, folks. Welcome to episode 24 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So, in a bit, uh, you're going to hear my interview with... The formidable, and that's the only word I can really use to describe her, the formidable Annie Gooch, who spent 40 years in UK law enforcement doing some pretty amazing stuff. So Annie's got policing and law enforcement running through her like a stick of Blackpool rock. And what she hasn't done, uh, particularly around some very, very sensitive and high risk areas of policing what she hasn't done in those areas just basically isn't worth doing and i must say that doing this podcast is unbelievably uh i just feel unbelievably privileged to speak to some of these people and it's such a joy it really is such a joy to speak to people and i've spoken to so many amazing people in the course of doing this podcast um one of my friends said to me the other day said oh god have you just not like had enough of it now do, do, do you want to just do you not think you should just like leave it alone and I said well no um I don't think I'm quite ready to just leave it alone just yet you know the fact is that I'm doing a load of work um, professionally uh, working with the high tech sector um, developing some really exciting solutions for law enforcement Um, so it's really brilliant to be doing stuff um, to continue to put something back into policing I suppose and then the rest of the time I'm doing stuff like this so I just think oh god no why would you want to leave it alone but before we dive into the interview it's just worth touching briefly on something that has been consuming all the headlines today and that's the decision by the Metropolitan Police to investigate all of the shenanigans party or shall we call it party central um, aka ten Dining Street. So when the rest of the country were having to um, you know go without seeing dying relatives um, in hospitals and hospices and care homes and sitting on their own. Um, or at home uh, experiencing serious mental health problems because of loneliness and lack of social contact. Clearly, in 10 Dining Street, it was a whole different thing altogether. And uh, everyone's been having a right uh, rip-roaring time of it, it would appear. So I've got to say, um, I can't pretend that I haven't had a big grin on my face watching Boris squirming in the last couple of weeks and as the drip, drip, drip effect of more revelations uh, create what appears to be now a completely unsustainable situation for him. And if I was a betting man, I think we'll be having a new Prime Minister in the next few months. In the immortal words of Windsor Davis, Oh dear, how sad, never mind. Anyway, let's get into the interview with the wonderful Annie Gooch. So everybody, this week I've got the um, pleasure of speaking to um, Annie Gooch, who was given, I got so many recommendations that I needed to speak to Annie on one of the Facebook sites. Um, So Annie, welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast.
1: Hi everybody, it's a pleasure and thank you for all my colleagues mm-hmm. recommending me. Our money's in the post.
0: <laughs> well Annie, you've obviously made quite an impact on a lot of people and, and it was clear from some of the banter going on uh, between you and others that that you're obviously quite a, a sort of a feisty individual which is always fun. It's always nice to chat to people like that. So um, just give me a little bit of a A potted history of your early days in the job. When you joined, why you joined, that's what I'm really interested in, and sort of reflections of your early part of your career, I suppose.
1: Okay, well, I joined in 1976. Um, It was just after the law had changed, which allowed uh, female officers to perform the same roles and receive the same money, more importantly. Um, And I was in that first wave of female officers that were joining the Met Police, Uh, massive recruitment across the board for the Met. I think there was 90 going through, not women, obviously. (laughs) There was 90 uh, in total going through just my week. Uh, So lots and lots of young officers, inexperienced officers, coming into the job at that time and then just being thrust out onto the streets. Um, I then went to central London, which was, for me, I I think a blessing. Very busy area, Tottenham Court Road but without the residential side of things um so there was lots of yeah. crime arrests yeah. but a, a little less of the grief i had a very young relief um so very accepting the van driver and the aero driver were obviously uh, quite you know had quite a, a bit of service um but we were out there we're all youngsters we're all competitive you just walk out to the top of the court road you've only got to do 10 or 12 stops and you will find something you know all this traffic coming north um a red ink stop you know it was a badge of honor in those days um and did you have any
0: um did you have any family in the job at all and what was there any any what was your motive for coming in in the first place
1: i'd always wanted to be a police officer i know it sounds a bit cheesy but you think you know i'm going to go out there i'm going to help people i'm going to change the world um i did have family i Uh, some family uh, up in the Midlands who were in in the service, but it was just something I'd always dreamed of. Um, And initially, when I left school, I couldn't join because uh, they didn't allow people who wore glasses. But as soon as that was... So I went into hotel management uh, initially and then as soon as you relax the uh, issue around spectacles, woof, I was uh, I was straight in.
0: And can I just say, for the record, you have got a pair of rather fetching <laughs> bright blue glasses on that are, I've got a very impressive matching, they match your top and everything. So, you know, well done you. So did you always wear glasses <laughs> right, from, right from day one, did you?
1: Oh yeah, from um, 18 months old. Uh, just one of them things, more and more through school, dreadful right. bullying. Um now they're a fashion accessory and all those people that do know me know you know i'm really particular about my hair uh, coordination handbag shoes the lot
0: excellent so it's 1976 i mean my god i so i didn't join until 1989 so really i was just a whipper snapper wasn't i oh, really you... you know bloody hell um so I was only let 10. me see <laughs> oh god 1976 let me think so when I when I joined you would have already had 13 years service god so that's uh can, wow. I just say, can you just say you're looking good on it you're looking good on it <laughs>
2: <laughs> but
0: uh no I mean Sex 1976 uh, that's uh that's the thing and um yeah 76 am I going to start even pre such eight years before Pierce even came along didn't yeah. it so so yeah, the you, golden so, days. so you would have um, experienced all of that pre-pace kind of policing, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: And did very you notice so. a big? Did you notice a big change when that came all came along?
1: Oh, it was horrendous, horrendous. I mean, there was there was some reasons why pace was brought in. Um, the police is a reflection of society, um, so whatever's happening in society will be reflected in the officers that join. Uh, there were individuals who perhaps stretch the rules a little and as a result pace was brought in but like everything in in our country we can never get a nice balance you know mm. you go from one extreme to the other mm-hmm. and the pain it brought about you know the rules regulations yeah it was it made life a, a lot more difficult
0: I mean I can one remember of them uh, you had people do, People were still, some old sweats were still complaining about pace in the 1990s, for God's sake. You know, I mean, like (laughs) 10 years on, they still hadn't kind of got with the programme, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm a believer in if you can't change something, you've got to make it work for you and just get on with it, really.
0: So after a few years, I'm just uh, looking at your synopsis that you sent me kindly. After a few years, you went to the SPG, the Special Patrol Group. So um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, what was that like?
1: Um, yeah, I was one of the first women to join. Um, it was a, I went six-unit Gypsy Hill, uh, amazing characters. Most of them had uh, 20, 30 years service, but still mm. keen as mustard. Three or four of us joined at the same time. Probably I had the, the least service, but hey-ho. Um mm. I found them a great bunch of people to work with, very keen, very protective of me. Yeah, there was some banter, but Mm. it was never malicious. Yeah. Um, And it was a a great place to work because when you're being regrouped and you're screaming through London on the blue light, two-tone horns in three blue carriers, it's an awesome sight. And when you get to the serious incident, you're being sent to deal with it. You can deal with it robustly because – you know, you get out there. You, I'm a great believer in communicating with people. Till there's a point you cut, they won't communicate with you. And mm. if they all want to kick off, you've got 30 colleagues who are mm. only too willing to come in and support you. <laughs> yeah. So you can actually police properly. You can yeah. search people properly. You can you can um, deal with a situation properly. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, if you didn't so, arrest somebody um, every day, you weren't you weren't uh, part of the unit.
0: So, so for anyone who's listening who isn't isn't sort of police or doesn't really understand um, what the special patrol group did, they were the precursor, the the sort of forerunners to the territorial support group, weren't they, the TSG? Um, and they were effectively their primary function was combating sort of proactive anti-crime patrols and as well as public order duties. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, we we also supported a lot of the central squads um, doing surveillance. Um, if there'd been a murder, we would be called in to do house-to-house. We did Notting Hill Carnival. We dealt with, uh, like, the Brixton riots and all the little ones that then popped up after that. Our work was very, very varied. But, yes, mm. we would be sent into an area where they had a particular issue, burglary mm. or robbery, and we would uh, effectively go out there and, you know, try and... Uh, Sort of that. Sort problem out.
0: On paper, if you actually think about it, you know, you're a woman, you've joined in 1976, you've gone into, four years in, you've gone into the Special Patrol Group. Um, You know, all of those things kind of, you look at that and you'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, my God, that must have been, like, properly, like, life on Mars. I mean, was it it, (laughs) from a women's point of view, did you experience much unacceptable behaviour towards you because you because you were a woman?
1: Um, when I first went out, being with the young team, uh, no. And if anybody did step up to that sort of mark, then I was somebody that would step my stall out, mm. you know, quite early days. This is who I am and mm. this is what I won't tolerate. Um, I'd heard at uh, Hendon about the station stamp uh, it was never muted at, at, when I went to Tottenham Court Road, but obviously in conversation, you make it known that everybody, if anybody wants to attempt it, I would go down fighting. Yeah. Um, special patrol group, there was a few times it got a bit risque, but you give as good as you get. You slap people down and you work hard. You become part of the team. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, I mean, obviously,
0: society society has changed massively, hasn't it? And attitudes to all sorts of things have have changed beyond recognition. You know, do, do you think do you think people have just become too sensitive now? Do you think there is that kind of is it a kind case of people um, being too quick to um, you know cry foul if they get you know maybe banter that was maybe not intended to be insulting, but it's a really tricky, one, isn't it? Finding that balance, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's a real hot potato at the moment. Just not around, not just about uh, female officers, but about life in general. One mm. has to think twice before you say anything, which I think is quite sad. I mean, if somebody's going to be vile and spiteful, they deserve the full force of mm. uh, regulations thrown against them. I think there is room for healthy banter. It's a way that officers in stressful situations go back to the canteen and, you know, throw a little bit of humour around. It's a way of dealing with that stress. Mm. Uh, and if it crosses the line, mm. I was always one that would step up and say, oi, you mm. know, out of order, red card. Yeah,
2: yeah. And that yeah.
1: generally did did yeah. sort it out. I've worked with a, you know, a a very small number of men who were completely anti-women and my attitude was, if you don't want to work with me, it's your loss, mate. And mm. I just go up and, you mm. know, deal with something else myself or, or find myself a new partner. Yeah. Um, I am a strong individual. And I don't, you know, I suppose there are some uh, girls, ladies out there that perhaps don't have that, you know, they're, they're sort of softer. Mm. Uh, but we, as a police community, I've got to look out for them. So if you see mm. something, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not able to step up to the mark, then You should be
2: doing it. Yeah. It's a really really tricky one. Getting
1: in there. It is a very tricky one. But again, you know, like I said earlier, trying to get a balance. We never seem to get a balance. I mean,
0: if you listen to, it's an interesting one, I think, because if you listen to a lot of the critics of policing at the moment, um, they are uh, very critical of the culture of policing. They say that, you know, it's... Either overbearing, or it's uh, heavy-handed, or it's misogynistic, or whatever. Uh, there's all sorts of things being levelled at policing at the moment, isn't there? Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose my my general fear is that whilst I don't, for a moment, want to see really bad behaviour in policing, I think you've got to people have got to kind of try and remember what the job is that police officers do, and yeah. the sort of people that you need. In that organisation, sometimes you don't you don't want people who are going to be too sensitive um, because a lot of the things that police officers have to do are incredibly difficult, scary and require a lot of courage, don't they? So do you want people who are going to be sitting around on their days off reading poetry? Probably not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I do. <laughs> oh, Boys deal boy, on the burning deck. But anyway, we'll move, I'll move on because I'm probably going to end up saying something that's going to get me into hot water. Yeah. Um, so anyway, moving on to, to your next posting. So you got you got Carter Street after that, I believe. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, good old Carter Street, the old Kemp Road. Um, I was a van driver by then because obviously I had to drive the carriers. So I was quite often posted in Mike Sierra too. and you become the van driver at a place like Carter Street and you know you've made it.
0: <laughs> I remember because I used to work at Clapham and you used to lock people up and they go, Don't take me to Carter Street, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what was it about Carter Street? Why did people say that?
1: I think it was a bit of an urban myth. Yeah. Well, I have to say that, don't I? Um no, I, I mean, yes, lots of people used to say it, but I don't think we were. It was any like worse a it, it was station. it was like a
0: standing joke. The number of people who said to me over the years, don't take me to Carter Street. <laughs> 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 and, I think, and I think I think I I know exactly what you mean about these urban myths because people used to say that about Clapham as well. Sometimes it's like, Oh yeah, I used mm. to get beaten up every time I got taken to Clapham. But I never once, never mm. once in my entire police service working in some of the busiest parts of London and the busiest parts of Birmingham, never once saw a prisoner being badly treated. Never, you know? Mm. And yet there's all of this stuff, which is just like... And it's very hard to prove the negative, isn't it? It's very hard to to sort of, you know, um, when that allegation gets made again and again and again... You know, I don't know. It's 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 almost that. Um, yeah, it's that urban myth again, isn't it? I suppose.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like, you know, Red Ink Stop was a badge of honour to the police. Being taken to a police station and getting roughed up was a badge of honour to them. You know, mm, it was, yeah. they could go out there and and I'm like you. you know, Yeah. People were dealt with robustly if they were kicking off
0: yeah but, but, um, but, that's, but that's that's different I think that's just about yeah um, you totally
1: know, justifiable so,
0: someone someone who is trying to hurt you um yeah. and and you're perfectly en- entitled to defend yourself and to restrain them if they're kicking off in the back of a van or something but this yeah. kind of idea that people get beaten up and thrown down the stairs and the cells and all of this stuff it's just never saw it. never ever saw it you know yeah
1: well they still it still carries on today and yet I don't think there's an inch of a custody suite now that doesn't have a camera on it. So I know, I where, they, where they think it's happening, uh, your guess is as good as
0: mine. So um, obviously going back to your your little um, uh, pricey of your career that you sent me, clearly mm-hmm. at some point in time you make a decision that you want to move into an investigative role. Um, so talk talk me through that then.
1: Yeah, I'm of Irish heritage and every four or five years I feel the need for uh, a new challenge. So Mm. I did 11 years in uniform and in my opinion, uh, the toll on body and soul, I think that's about, you know, it it was enough. You can be front line without, you know, being right at the front of, um, you know, all the crap. So I decided I wanted to specialise I wanted to join the regional crime squad. And to do that, I had to become a detective. So I had some very good uh, mentors while I was at Carter Street and ended up joining CID and um, doing my course at Hendon. And then eventually, uh, I ended up uh, on the regional crime squad. I'd Mm -hmm. taken promotion in the meantime. I passed as a competitor. And I actually put it on ice for five years because it was either become a detective sergeant on a borough somewhere, or go mm. to the Regional Crime Squad as a DC, and there was no competition. I went to the Regional Crime Squad.
0: Okay. So, um again, so what's just to time stamp this, what what year are we talking here roughly? You know, it's about 11 uh, years in so. n-
1: 1990. I think I joined the Regional, you know, the, the memory gets a bit foggy. Okay. Nin- yeah, 1991, I joined yeah. the Regional Crime Squad at East Dulwich.
0: Yeah. And uh, so, what was the main, I mean, I, I you know, bring in mind, you know, lots of people listen to this who, who don't work in the Met, never have even necessarily worked in the police. So talk me through the types of jobs you were working on in those days.
1: Um, the RCS had more of a uh, national uh, remit. So we would go after criminals that cross border. You could go to work on the Monday, get behind somebody in Bexley Heath and end up in North Wales and be there for two or three days while they did went about their dirty deeds. Mm. Um, so it was uh, top-level criminality, cross-border. Um, I mean, uh, lorry thefts were our bread-and-butter stuff in, mm. in those days because that was highly organised. You get a 40-footer mm. uh, full of televisions, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds.
2: Mm.
1: So, um, yeah, that, lorry thefts used to be our, our bread-and-butter.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and, again, I went to a great team. Uh, I had fabulous five years there it was marred somewhat at the end when a number of small number of colleagues were arrested for, uh, corruption. Um, mm. eventually went to prison. Uh, the rest of the team were not mm. dealt with particularly well by the investigating team. Um, mm. so yeah, so it, it, took the edge off of it. However, mm. when I look back at the rest of the time, we had some cracking jobs off. we nicked some really top level people. And, mm. um, yeah, they were good days.
0: And did you um in those days did you do did you have like investigative teams and then people who would do the sort of surveillance and stuff or did you kind of do all of it? No,
1: we did, we did it all. Right. We did it
0: all. So that's quite so unusual in today's world, isn't it? Cuz today if you need yeah. a surveillance team, you have you task a surveillance team and and the investigators will then put the job together for court and all of that and lock people up and put the case together. But in those days you did the whole thing, didn't you?
1: Yeah, you had more of a vested interest in it as well. You know, you'd 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 probably started the job off with an informant, then you'd done the surveillance with the rest of your team, culminating in an arrest, seizure, whatever it was, then your case papers and you go to court and you get result.
0: armed? Satisfying. did you have armed teams in those days?
1: Um no, well, I certainly wasn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody would trust me with a gun. Somebody upset me, they'd find it shoved up their nostril. Um, yeah, we must have had some arm capability, but mm. again, my my memories... Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. no. in fact, no, no, no. Yeah, we had a job off in, in High Street where we were doing something totally different. Mm. And then uh, one of the teams saw somebody casing the Marks and Spencer's. Right. So we all diverted. And long story short, they were... We, we followed them on foot to a lost of stolen down alleyway. Um, one of them had a gun, pushed it down the back of his uh, trousers. They were going to take out a security van when it arrived with mm. the cash. Mm. Uh, they got spooked. Off they went. And we had to call for firearms backup. Yep. Um, and that took forever. And in the end, one of my colleagues just decided to ram the car. And we, ju- we jumped on him, nicked him. I actually had the bloke with the, the gun uh,
0: mm.
1: off the back seat. Um so yeah, no, we didn't have an armed capability.
0: Yeah, so it's proper proper cops and robbers stuff then. Oh, the blood <laughs> starts pumping just talking about it. I know it's great, isn't it? Um, yeah, those jobs um, are, are amazing. So, so you, um, how long did you do that at the uh, the regional?
1: Um, nearly five years.
0: Right, okay. So you'd, I imagine you must have seen some cracking jobs in that time. But then obviously your, your career sort of starts taking you towards the more sort of the covert world of um, uh, kidnapping and extortion. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'd um, become a DS by then. Right. And um, I'd actually been selected for the flying squad. Right. But they were putting a lot of pressure on me to become firearms trained. Right. A A, I'd already got some damage to my hearing um, from the surveillance earpieces. I didn't want to, you know, put my head above the parapet with that. And mm-hmm. B, I think you have to have an aptitude for firearms. And I certainly mm. am not somebody who should have a gun. <laughs> um, I luckily I got a phone call from a sex superintendent from the kidnap unit. Mm-hmm. And it was all part of SCD seven. Right. And he said, Oh, I hear they're giving you a bit of a hard time, Annie. Come and have a look at the kidnap unit. Right. Well, it's one of the Met's best kept secrets. Really? I went and saw, you know, mm. traveling tra- tra- all over the world, deploying onto uh, kidnaps, mm. covert capabilities. It's all mm. sexy and exciting and mm. surveillance and firearms. Well, the, there was no decision, and yeah. it was for me it was life changing because right. because of the experience I gained over the years. Yep. eventually when I retired, I went to up to head the soccer head of um, the soccer and to kidnap an extortion unit
0: after retirement so that's the thing isn't it about the met i suppose um the met get a bit of a hard press don't they from other forces around the country because they think uh, other forces you know think the met are a bit too big too big for its boots and all that and Mm. you know the stories even even laterally you know with things like the g7 and stuff everyone takes the pisses like (laughs) Uh, you know with the Mets like oh in the Met in the Met this in the Met that and you know what I mean the Met do get get some stick don't they but yeah but the reality is and I can say this as an ex-Met officer the reality is that certainly you know when the years that you're describing the Met did have national responsibilities for all sorts of things didn't it and uh and and it had a you know to all intents and purposes, a kind of almost a global remit, really, particularly around certain types of crime, particularly around kidnappings and and things. So, I mean, did you you end up doing a lot of travelling with that job?
1: Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I was deployed to um, quite a few countries on live jobs. And and like you say, they were the days when, if there was a foreign connection, you'd be like, get your bag, Annie, get on the next plane and you'd be over there. Um, You know, I went to India. Romania. Uh, eventually, went to Afghanistan, Mexico.
0: Right, uh, and these yeah. are Brit- and so just so we're clear here are these are British nationals who have yep. been who have been kidnapped um, by um, hostile organisation, whether that's crime or terrorism. Would that be about right?
1: Yep, spot on.
0: Okay, and and who actually then tasks you and brings you in? Is it the Foreign Office who who calls you in?
1: Yeah, you do work um, uh, when uh, in a case like that, um, hand in glove with the Foreign Office. Right. I think it's a bit tighter now. We had more of a say so in things back in in, in those days. Um, you know, the superintendent investigating it, right? They want somebody to deployed to India, um, and really, it was always going to happen.
0: Right. Okay. So, what describe your role in that? So, obviously, you're running the unit as a DS. Um, mm-hmm. Were you doing the negotiating, or were you sort of keeping the job running in terms of running the kind of assets around the job, if that makes sense?
1: Um, n- negotiating? No. That I came, that came later. I actually became a, a negotiator as a DI. It had to be a DI. Be a negotiator. Right. Uh, as a DS on the kidnap um, unit, we had three teams, and each team had two DSs, and you'd be on call once every three weeks. Right. So, any jobs that came in, you would be called out into the yard, get your brief in, surveillance teams would be called out, SO 19, nine times out of 10,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Central 500 would be set up, and you'd mm-hmm. go out on the ground, um, you know, doing the inquiries behind the surveillance team pulling it all together fast time mm-hmm. um, and nine times out of ten the fast time intelligence unit that sat behind central 500 would be feeding stuff in surveillance feeding stuff in got your blue commander your silver commander and there would be eventually a hostage identified or somewhere mm-hmm. where the hostage had being held and you would have the, the strike
2: mm-hmm.
1: rescue your hostage Everybody else went home and you as the team would then be... Just try and exhibits, put, put, the job, put the job yeah.
0: together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So uh, I probably know the answer to this question before I ask it, but I'll ask it anyway. What percentage of your kidnaps that you dealt with were kind of bad on bad?
1: Oof, a large, a large percentage. Um, stranger kidnap is very, very rare.
0: Mm.
1: We dealt with um, two. One was a young child um the rest of it was uh bad on bad however mm. the ethos then was um you don't want kidnap to become endemic in this country
2: mm-hmm.
1: if you dealt with a kidnap uh, nine times out of ten the victim didn't want to know he would be on the back of the back he'd be on the back seat uh, bound gagged beaten to a pulp and it'd be like no i've just been out with a drive round with my friends you know all that crap but yeah when you when you took them out you had the recordings of the uh, demands so you got blackmail yep. inevitably you would find them with drugs firearms or some other offences so you yep. would have a job and yep. the judges did not like kidnap and blackmail and they would get lengthy sentences yeah so a lot of people couldn't understand why it got the bells and whistles response mm. but
0: yeah 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 we, we had well, a lot
1: of success
0: it's um i mean i did a lot of stuff around threats to life when i was a superintendent, um, before I retired. And, um, you know, and a lot of people used to say to me, uh, who gives a shit, you know, whether two, whether mm-hmm. two drug dealers kind of kill each other. Um, exactly. um, but what I'd always say, well, apart from the small matter of the, um, right to life, you know, under the human rights act, um, yeah, there's also the reality that very often decent members of the public get caught up in the crossfire, and the number of you know attempted murders where someone discharges a firearm or puts a shotgun th- through the wrong person's window when they're settling down to watch Coronation Street yeah. um, is very very frequent, unfortunately. And I had an interesting interview earlier on in the podcast. I think it was episode nine or ten. I think it was with Scott Walker, and Scott was a kidnapped Kenny. Uh, a kidnapping hostage negotiator before leaving mm-hmm. the police and, and and going into the private sector to do a similar sort of job. And he was describing how, you know, in the latter part of his police hostage negotiator um, career, um, the the reason for, you know, taking someone hostage became really more and more trivial as time went on. You know, there was a time when you know, to to take someone, to bundle them into the boot of the car and and keep them hostage and inflict torture on them was, was really, you know, would have to be something fairly serious, but he was describing, you know, really quite trivial reasons for doing that. Did you, mm. you sort of see that?
1: Oh, God, yes. I can remember uh, we nearly lost one of our hostages. Um, we got him back, but he was so badly injured over a £50 pound drug debt. Um, that he was in intensive care for a long time, um, mm. yeah. You know, but with the criminals, it's not the amount; it's mm. the fact that they have to show they're strong. It's all about respect. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was, have you ever seen a nipple burnt off with a hair, oh. pair of hair straighteners? Um,
0: that was
1: that was another.
0: Annie, what I choose to do in the in the privacy of my own home is is down to me. To... <laughs> 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 who told you? Who told you about that? <laughs> no, I haven't.
1: haven't. Never,
0: never divulge your
1: sources. Yeah, they,
0: <laughs> no, I haven't.
1: I've seen, I've seen horrific injuries inflicted. Um, I think kidnapping is one of the worst crimes ever to deprive you. You know, they don't know if they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, the torture. Uh, it doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. Yeah. Uh, nobody should be given carte blanche to perform that. And I understand now the kidnap unit has actually been disbanded, which is a shame because it was best in the world. Mm. And I read a report recently that the instances of criminal gangs torturing, um, Mm. kidnapping, has shot through the roof. Well, Mm.
0: Mm. there's a lesson there, isn't there? Yeah well it's probably in common with every other type of crime unfortunately isn't it but um yeah. so anyway I'm conscious of the time because there's uh, there's other parts of your career I really want to get into um really interesting um so you but you you move on uh, you take promotion <clears throat> I believe and then you go into running the surveillance unit uh, SO11 yeah. is that right Yeah 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 so presumably from your days in the regional crime squad that's uh, sort of a world that you probably understand pretty well already I imagine
1: yeah, and, and the kidnap unit, because we used to we always had um, surveillance, SO-11 surveillance teams deployed. So when I became a DI, right. I, wanted, I wanted to go and join the surveillance unit because I could then stay in the kidnap <clears throat> arena as a blue commander. So somebody mm. in the control room managing the surveillance units, uh, sitting alongside Silver. Yeah. So you were, you were still frontline, but just not actually there. Yeah, you're yeah, still yeah. in the action you're still making critical fast time decisions you mm. know if you if you get this wrong it would be career and life changing if somebody died and fortunately i'm touching wood now we never lost mm. a hostage uh who was kidnapped for ransom
0: so so SO11 um I, I, I described this in an earlier again in an earlier podcast episode where there was a Um, before I joined a surveillance team we obviously had to go through the surveillance um, training (laughs) which was led by SO11 wasn't it and um, it was and there was a very uneasy relationship between SO11 and my department SO12 which was special branch Um, and uh, there was a sort of a mindset I think in some of SO11 that they kind of almost resented anyone anyone doing surveillance other than them did you ever sort of kind of see that or hear that or is that is that an urban myth do you think
1: um the training actually fell uh, into my remit as uh, as the di so uh, hendon surveillance training course was my baby mm. and i don't think i think what it it boils down to is these boys and girls so 11 are the best in the mm. world mm. and i traveled extensively looking for good practice around who was doing what you know the FBI the bits mm. and pieces, who was doing what, so you could bring that and add benefits to your current course.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, when I look at the work of those boys and girls at the highest level, the most top secret jobs, it, the surveillance was like a second skin.
2: Mm.
1: And if you lose that tactic because people actually do it, you know, half cocked mm. uh, and, and, you know, reveal the tactics, mm. um, they took that very personally. Mm. so their attitude was if you're going to do surveillance you have to be trained to the highest level not one of Mm. these ad hoc let's put an earpiece in and go and hit the streets yeah yeah. because all that does is tell the criminals how we're doing it yeah so that was their passion
2: Mm.
1: and uh, perhaps sometimes yeah they thought um you know people weren't doing it as well as they were who knows yeah
0: yeah yeah it's um yeah i've got to say the course was very very good i really enjoyed it but um but yeah they they didn't suffer falls did they on that course and uh...
1: <laughs> no they didn't no they didn't
0: but um so, so you take promotion then you become the dci head of surveillance um is that right I,
1: I did i did it was a natural progression i'd been performing the role of acting dci there was no dci there at the time so when i uh, was successful with my dcis i just asked to stay
0: right you you go on to um what was serious and organized crime agency soccer which was the precursor to the national crime agency isn't it yeah. um um so tell me about that that because obviously that's a it's a funny old organization wasn't it soccer we always had a slightly i don't know there's something about it. okay i'm just gonna be dead honest here um there was always a lot of eye rolling that would go on when people talked about soccer as i recall back in those days it seemed to, and I heard someone describe it as successfully managing to create the worst of the civil service and the worst of policing within one organization. <laughs> is, that, is, that wow. un, is, that, is that really unfair?
1: Um, well, to start with, I, I think w- mainly,
0: I think what the point being, I thought it was a very bureaucratic organization. I think that was the point.
1: Yeah, you see, again, I was really fortunate to be uh, kidnapping extortion. Um, I'd come up to my 30, I was going to stay. Um, I I got a phone call, put in for the job, and um, there was, you know, it, it was a great job, so I, I did take it. And again, when you're in that dynamic threat to life world, mm. you tend to find that bureaucracy takes a bit of a back step
2: mm. Mm.
1: because you ask for something, you get it. Yeah. It was a bit of a shock when I went to Malaga, and I'm ringing people saying, "You know, I've got this job on, and I need this bailiff team now." And they were like, "Oh, how can we can we can do a week next Tuesday?" Whereas yeah. with kidnap, threat to life, extortion,
0: yeah,
1: it's all instant.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. no
1: messing around. So yeah. perhaps I have a different view of it because yeah. I didn't have to join the the normal.
0: You know, yeah. task you, you were clearly at the sharp end of the pointy end, <laughs> weren't you, of operations, which means that you probably would have been able to avoid maybe some of that dysfunctional bureaucracy because you were very focused on bringing a positive outcome to operations, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I was very lucky. Yes, I had to go to a few meetings with people from different backgrounds to mine. And I met a bit of a different mindset if mm. I can be polite yeah. you know where you just want to reach across the table and <laughs>
0: read shake, them, their shake them gently by the throat.
1: <laughs> but you have to be diplomatic in situations like that. Yeah. you know you piss somebody off and you're not going to get anything. you, you need to bring you need been a negotiator, you've got to be, bring people on board yeah, yeah. in whatever way you can. Yeah. So um, So by
0: this stage, you've um, you've gone up to the equivalent of superintendent. Is that right? So, yeah. So, so yes, your career has kind of like, you know, you've you've continually gone up the next up that promotion ladder, I suppose um yeah did did you find just looking at just talking about the whole rank thing for a minute did you find that the higher up you went from a rank point of view the further away you were able you got from the sort of operational end or were you able to sort of succeed in kind of keeping a foot in both camps so to speak
1: yeah again I was uh, uh fortunate in that job because um I ran the unit with. Uh, another detective superintendent. And part of our job was to deploy to forces if they had a, a live job. Yeah. Um, Rob had a lot of experience. I certainly did in the kidnap world over the years. Um, you know, the Mets got a great response. West Mid's got a great response. A lot mm-hmm. of the smaller forces would have a, um, uh, you know, a, a bad on bad kidnap. And it's probably the first time they've ever dealt with it. Yeah. So our job was to get in a car, Once we did it about turns, get over there and be a critical friend to the superintendent running the job, not to take over, but to be there and alongside them, listen to what's going off and then have a bit of a, you know, a, a bouncing session. Well, what do you think about this? And we've done this in the past that might work or whatever it was. Okay. Um, so and the forces the bigger, were very appreciative of it.
0: With the bigger you know, forces, you know, um, like like the bigger forces like West Midlands, Greater Manchester, Merseyside, etc., would they would you have just let them crack on because they've got the resources and the experience?
1: Um, well, there was a couple of things there. We helped them. Uh, my remit was to go out to the forces and help them put together um, a an effective response to crime in action. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I had a really varied job. So, there's a lot of training there that me mm. and my team helped. um, Critical friend to a superintendent. Um, but no, some of the bigger forces would actually come into us, particularly if there was an international element to it or right. cross border element to it. Yeah. And we had various assets at our disposal that we could deploy. Sometimes I'd send one of my um, teams, they were all mm. DSs, to go up there and again sit in the control room and help a Lib- you were in that world with threats to life it's mm. a very lonely world when mm. it's all on your shoulders mm. so to have somebody there who's not from force yeah who's not going to be judgmental and sit in the canteen and have a cup of tea and like oh you should have yeah. seen what they did the other week
2: yeah
1: um i think was a really positive asset and i had some fantastic uh boys and girls on on the team that yeah, yeah. so yeah it, w- it was a bit of all things and
0: um it's a funny old world now, isn't it? Because you've got this very, I mean, the policing, as you know, is incredibly fragmented, um, which makes it very, in my view, very inefficient and not very cost effective. So you've got, obviously, the 43 forces in England and Wales, and you've got all the odds and swords of policing, the BTPs and the, you know, the MOD police and God knows what else. Uh, And then you've got the ROKUs, the Regional Organised Crime Units, you know, all around the country. And then you've got the CT network, and then yeah. you've Got the National Crime Agency. So the potential for, as what we would have described, um, well, Bristol would, um, blue on blue, uh, in other words, one law enforcement agency stepping on the toes of another law enforcement agency, which can be, can be really, um, you know, quite devastating in a particularly in a high threat scenario. And um, did yeah. you find? Did you find? I'm going to use a really policey word now. Did you find deconflicting? those kind of operations quite tricky sometimes?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. And and I don't think that will ever change because, you know, you can get people together, you can build relationships, but there's always, uh, you know, well, this is my organisation and that's your organisation. I don't want you treading on my bits or or, or they might be looking to poach. There's always this sort of um, conflict, Mm, you know what mm, I mean? Yeah.
2: Um,
1: Which is quite sad, really, but you're never going to get rid of that. You're mm. never going to get rid of that. You can just do the best you can with yeah. trying to avoid a situation like that. And mm. fortunately, at the moment, we haven't had a catastrophic result. Yeah. I think people are becoming more joined up, you know, share it, particularly from back, you know, when I joined, sharing them intelligence was mm. a complete no-no. Mm.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and people now realise you have to share things, otherwise yeah. it's all going to go belly up.
0: Yeah. And certainly, you know, my experience of of running some of those jobs, um, common, you described the common training now given to surveillance officers. It's it's a common, it's a common language that's used across all law enforcement agencies. <laughs> Excuse me, the communications, um, you know, radios and communications and stuff is is all you know relatively straightforward in terms of meshing that all together. So it's quite normal now to have a big operation where you've got you know, surveillance teams, for example, from three or four different organizations, all working quite happily together, with firearms yeah. teams um, tacked on the back, or special forces, or, or whatever. So it does. It def- I think, in an operational sense, it it does work. I think. I think the the difficulties, in my experience, are that uh, it's at the sort of a, a strategic level of those organizations sometimes where it all can get a bit um, difficult, can't it?
1: Oh, God, yeah, when we first um, uh, set out around uh, the UK to talk to the chief constables, you know, about what we're about and what we could bring to them, and there was a lot of hostility and, like, you know, who are you? Who do you think you are? Mm. Um, And, again, I I had the stance. I used to do a bit of a presentation, uh, and at the end of it, I'd have a dramatic scenario where it all went wrong, and it would be like, do you want that to happen on your watch, in your area, and the fallout from that. You know, try and drive home this: um, the fact that if you, you get it wrong on a kidnap or a threat to life or critical incident, mm. it, you know, it's life-changing for your victims, and it's career-changing and life-changing for you. Mm. And it was a bit of a, you know, short, sharp bang. And uh, they eventually did come on board. They could mm. see why we we're there and the benefits of it. Mm. Mm. Life's about communication, isn't it?
0: yes definitely so um, key. just move to your next book because this is um i mean it's all really really interesting and you could talk i <laughs> could talk all day about every job that you've done but we haven't got time to do that so um but i'm really interested in your next move which is when you go to malaga as as the national crime agency uh, liaison officer so so now serious and organized crime agency has morphed into what is now the National Crime Agency, and you go out yeah. to, to Malaga. So how did that happen then?
1: Um, a national Crime Agency has uh, law enforcement officers in strategic posts throughout the, uh, throughout the world, areas where there's significant impact to the UK from these countries. Uh, obviously, in Malaga, in the south of Spain, well, it's a nexus point for cocaine, drugs, you name it. And there's a, I think it's the biggest criminal British community outside of England, living in the south of Spain. Hmm. So there's a, a post there. It's very sought after. Uh, hmm. It came up just as I was coming towards five years on the the kidnapping extortion. The Irish blood kicks in. Hmm. Uh, let's have a bit of a challenge. I put in for it. It was uh, the rank, the next rank down. So I took Mm. automatic uh, demotion, which sent a few heads spinning. uh, Mm. You know, you you can't in the national, you can't do that. Not allowed. Mm. Um, But eventually won my case, did the board, got the job. And the next minute I was being sent out to Malaga. You know, you pinch yourself.
0: Is this real? So, again, for anybody who's listening who doesn't really get this, um, it is I think the only word you can really use to describe that part of Spain from a criminality point of view is it's like a multinational cesspit, isn't it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't have put it better myself.
0: (laughs) It is a cesspit of criminality of every nation, isn't it? Every nation's major criminals flock to that particular Part of spin and yeah. um, I can't even imagine what it must be like for the local old bill to have to deal with some of the low life who are out there a resident out there presumably so there's a thousand questions I can ask you about this but I'll start yeah. with what was it like trying to keep tabs on all of these very very dangerous people who are living in that part of spain
1: almost impossible almost impossible um it's not like the uk where you you know you've got your networks in there they live in their enclaves they uh, used the same places it's very difficult to get any sort of infiltration in there um so you just got to you know pick your your, your your best op, your best option
0: targets of opportunity yeah
1: um
0: and of course you've I mean, got um, to- um you've got cr- criminal gangs literally from all over the world who are coalescing there aren't you particularly around eastern european russian mm. criminals you've got north african i mean were you i mean obviously you're not going to discuss operations clearly but were your efforts focused primarily or exclusively on British criminals or were you just interested in taking out anyone?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like taking out anybody yeah. Um, we would take a job on if it had a significant impact on the UK right so obviously not all the cocaine and the firearms coming into the UK was purely uh, brought in by the Brits. Mm. You'd have other other um, nationalities um, uh, doing the same thing. So it, I went where the intelligence was, right. and then my my job was to uh, try and persuade the Spanish to do a joint operation. Mm-hmm. Difficult because you know they don't have a massive amount of money and resources here, um, and it's passing trade. So really, right. there's no there's no impact on on their country. Yeah yeah these people yeah. live in their communities they spend a lot of money they buy big houses mm. uh, they eat in the top restaurants so actually they are an asset to the economy in southern spain unfortunately drive by shootings drug related crime uh, violence mm. is is sort of you know part of part of that uh, package
0: yeah and what were um, your relationships like with the local police
1: we we never dealt with the local police. Um, there's there's three three sets of uh, organisations. There's a policia local, and we never had anything to do with with them. Uh, there were certain issues, shall we say, with the local police, mm-hmm. and we didn't want to we didn't want to test out you know if there'd ever be a leak or not.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I work with the um, organised crime units from the Spanish National Police, Policía mm-hmm. Nacional, and the Guardia Civil. Um, and we had well eventually we had a fantastic relationship
0: Mm. and how do do they how do they feel about all these um scumbags for want of a better word (laughs) turning up in their part of spain because i wouldn't be very impressed if if we had suddenly let's imagine okay you get a part of cornwall where suddenly criminal gangs i'm not talking about trivial little tin pots Drug dealers, street drug dealers. We're talking about major criminals from all over the world co- coalesce in Padstow. Let's imagine that, because that's yeah. kind of that's kind of the English equivalent, isn't it? Um, it certainly so is. I imagine the the Spanish old Bill or the Guardia Seville, are pretty unimpressed with that, are they?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, uh, <sighs> What can they do? They have arrived. Um, I think Brexit might have a bit more of an impact because mm. you know before you could just come into the country, mm. uh, you didn't have your passport stamped. It has made it more. It has made it more difficult for them.
0: Can I? So I tell you my my funny story of um, my holiday from hell. It's the worst holiday I've ever had in my whole life. So okay. back, back in when I was in back in. Uh, I was in special branch at the time. And I uh, three or four mates of mine who were not police officers um, suggested that we go and have a a week in the sun. with A bunch of um, you know blokes <clears throat> and I'd know I'd never really done the whole lads' holiday thing ever. Um, I mean, I wasn't a lad. I mean, by this stage I was in my early thirties, so it was you know it was going to be reasonably. Civilized, I suppose. Um, but my 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 mate Steve organised it, and I just sort of went, yeah, yeah. Just tell me what what week it is. Don't care. I'll just go anywhere as long as it's sunny. Not bothered. Um, tell me how much money you need, and, and that was that. So uh, eventually uh, he sort of said, well, I've got it all booked. We've got a we've got a week. There's going to be five of us. It's going to be a week. we're going to have a week in Port of Banus. So. <laughs> God, I know all the places I know. I know, so I didn't know where bloody Portobanus was. I couldn't have found it on a map if you'd given me a map. I had no, I'd know all I cared was, is it sunny? Yes, it is brilliant. I'm I'm, I'll be there. So we went there. And for for someone who was I'd been a police officer by this stage for probably over 10 years, I was remarkably naive about the whole thing. So when we turned up in Portobanus on the first night. I oh, was sorry, you know, you you see, you see what you want to see initially, don't you? The, the sun's shining. There's yachts in the marina. It all looks yeah. very pleasant, and uh, Skim-
1: skimpily clad ladies. Lots
0: of attractive young women around, and uh, thinking, oh, this will do for me. A week here will be very nice, you know. Anyway, it all started to go wrong on the first night that we were there, where um, I was married with um a child at the time so I wasn't looking to kind of you know uh Pop off. have lots of sex put it that way I was <laughs> I was there literally just to have a week of relaxing reading my book by the pool and, and and getting a suntan but a few of the other lads were single so you know fair fair enough they were going to be chatting up girls in the bars and what have you but Within 24 hours, I was sitting there just watching some of the people wandering around thinking, oh, my God, this place is full of bloody criminals. They're all look like a right bunch of, um, you know, organised crime group members that all run around with scars on their faces and just looking absolutely dreadful. And uh, and then the first night we went out, um, every time one of these lads that I was with tried to cop off with some girl, they would find out Towards the end of the night, that she was a prostitute, like a high class prostitute, and, and and would say words to the effect of, "Well, if you know, you're not going to get it for nothing. It's going to cost you like five hundred pounds a night or something like that." So they would get. They was gradually getting the hump, and by the time we got to sort of night three of our holiday, this had happened so many times that they were starting to have a sense of humor failure. But, and anyway, long story short, but one of the lads ended up getting involved in a head-to-head with a very nasty piece of work in a bar in port on about ninth evening, three. The next day, we were basically being followed around uh, by blokes who you really didn't want to have following you around. You know what I mean? They were really mm. da- dangerous-looking individuals. They were coming up to us. We found a, uh, a business card under the... Um, windscreen wiper of our higher car, which is a little Vauxhall Corsa that looked exactly the same as every other Vauxhall Corsa parked in the car, car park of the hotel. And it had a Marbella Medical Center for all your medical needs on, under the windscreen wiper. So anyway, long story yeah. short, I buggered off after four days. I said, I'm not, I'm not having this. I didn't come on holiday to get stabbed. So, I mean, is Porto Pannus, has it always been like that?
1: Well, I suppose back in the 70s it was a little bit more sophisticated, but it's a complete shithole now. Right. Um, I won't recommend anybody to go there. It's nice walking down the front, you know, see the big yachts, like you say, but it's just full of dregs of the earth.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, when when you when you were when you were there, um uh did you if you needed to, something doing did you have to rely exclusively on the spanish police to kind of put boots on the ground so to speak or is it does it ever happen that british old bill turn up and help with arrests and things like that or is that absolutely not allowed
1: no no we, we used to have a lot of visiting forces coming over Um, I mean, obviously you've got no power of arrest over there,
2: Mm.
1: but if they had a specific job and we could locate what they needed to locate or the person they needed to locate, uh, the officers would come out and the Spanish would take them in the back seat um, and they'd be present at the arrest with Mm. the permission of the judge. They could be there when the house was searched, um, but they weren't allowed to actually uh, lawfully get involved in things. They'd be there as an advisor, overseer. Uh, and 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 Vicky Verkey, we had a couple of jobs with the Guardia Seville where uh, I managed to get the Guardia Civil officers over to uh, England mm-hmm. for when they hit the address, took the person out, and and did the search.
0: So if you're if you're looking to try and house someone um, out there, um, you're obviously if that was happening in the UK, we would task a surveillance team to to you know yeah. um, locate them and and house them you know in advance of the arrest team going in um would would the spanish deploy that that level of resource for you at your request if if necessary
1: oh yeah 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 they 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 would um i mean they have assets similar to ours Mm -hmm. perhaps not as well equipped and that was another thing that i got involved in getting stuff from the uk that was perhaps sitting in the cupboard Mm, Um, mm. because the team had got the latest model and then it shipped out to the Spanish teams because they're working on equipment from back in the 90s.
2: Um,
1: But yeah, they would deploy uh, some sort of surveillance team. Mm. They could task informants. Mm. Uh, They had obviously firearms capability because they're all armed over there. Uh, And they would do that part of the work on our behalf. Conversely, if they had a Spanish target going to the UK, I could then ask for surveillance uh, whilst that person was in the UK to obtain the evidence from uh, what they're up to in in our country. Right. And uh, there's a sharing, you know, it's very it's very much a um, a partnership, mm-hmm. you know,
0: and um, uh, and you be- work
1: you work very hard at trying to give the Spanish something back for all their efforts.
0: Hmm. And bearing in mind the nature of these people that we're talking about, um, I mean, I obviously you know told my little story about. You know been chased around Port by a bunch of thugs um, These are not these are really really horrible horrible mm. people aren't they? I mean did yeah. you did you ever personally worry about your own security when you're right there?
1: It's a constant thought yes. I mean um, the NCA and the Foreign Office are quite good at where you're uh, living. You know, you can't go and live down in uh, Fuengirola because it's cheap mm. because you'd be amongst it. So you are, there's careful consideration about where you live. Um, you're always very mindful about who you talk to, uh, where you go, taking different routes home. Um, mm. I, I was never on social media. Mm. I kept my job very tight, you know, with just like my husband. Mm. Uh, it, it is a It is a worry because these people mm. would uh probably wouldn't kill you mm. that would bring a lot of heat onto them but
0: yeah but they certainly I don't want to put, put the frighteners on you. you yeah put yeah, the yeah. frighteners
1: on you put you no. out of action yeah, yeah yeah. so you did I mean people say oh Malaga you know what about people in Afghanistan mm, but um mm, they mm. have armed bodyguards I was yeah. I was on yeah. my own so yeah, yeah, yeah. you have yeah. to be a little bit savvy yeah. about everything you
0: do mm-hmm. yeah and um you went on to Portugal, I believe. Was I was I did you come back to the UK before going out to Portugal?
1: No, no, no. I was coming up to the end of my um tenure. You're only allowed to do uh, four to five years, and I was coming mm. up to the end of five years. Uh the Portugal Post literally became vacant overnight. So I was like, well look, I'm gonna retire soon. So do you want me to babysit it? Oh, that- mm. Can't <laughs> be a real chore, but so I got I got sent straight from Spain over to Portugal to babysit the post while they recruited another officer and trained them up. um So I had my last year of service was uh, working just at, at, at Lisbon.
0: Very nice. So and was that, working... I imagine I imagine that must have been quite different. I mean, whilst it's probably not without its uh, challenges compared to Malaga, it's a different uh, level of threat, isn't it? I suppose
1: yeah most of the criminals live down on the Algarve. um yeah and i mean it, it, it is you know it's it's starting to get a lot of the criminals were starting to move to portugal because of the heat in the south of spain it's you know it's, it's a couple of hours ride um, so we're seeing a big increase in the cr- when you say the community. Heat, do you mean
0: the do you mean the temperature yeah. or the heat the heat from <laughs> i was going to say the heat from uh, law enforcement
1: yeah the heat from law enforcement now they like their they like their sun right.
0: um
1: so, yeah, that last year, it was a bit of a recharge of my batteries because Malaga was full on 24-7. It was mm. Just me there, always on the phone, always being called out, always something happening, always jobs on the go. Mm.
2: Um,
1: I was pretty burnt out by the by the end of that. Mm. So to go to Portugal and, you know, keep, keep the relationships going, have a couple of jobs off. Yeah. But it wasn't as intense as yeah. Malaga was probably the right thing to do. For yeah. Me, but, yeah. You know, well, I was just going to say, probably,
0: uh, I think if you had left immediately after Malaga, that would have been a hell of a shock to the system, wouldn't it? And it probably just gave yeah. you that little bit of decompression, yeah. I suppose, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Start to wind down a little bit. Um, yeah. So and then it, you, it was uh, a lovely place to work in as well.
0: So you retired, and so how many years did you do in law enforcement in total?
1: Oh, 40 years. I used to think people that had 40 years of service with status, and, <laughs> and
0: there play. I was,
1: I became one. Fair I wasn't play. ready to go after 30 years. Um, and yeah, You know, yeah. it's p- different people, different bag, and I'm really pleased I went to Soccer National Crime Agency because mm. I had a fantastic mm. 10 years, really amazing 10 years. But it was time to go. It was 2016. Leicester won the premiership <laughs> against all odds. <laughs> and
0: you got, um, six... you got a gong? You got a gong? You got a gong as well?
1: yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You got yeah. a medal? Yeah. So, yeah,
0: so what did got, you get? What did
1: you get? I got an MBE.
0: Oh, well done, so you.
1: I went. I went to Buckingham Palace for a cup of tea and a bond. Um, <sighs> my family were just, oh, it was amazing. And, the British do pomp and ceremony uh-huh. like uh-huh. no other.
2: Yeah, it was is... a
1: fantastic day. Uh, but the thing is, uh, there's so many people that deserve an award like that. You know, mm. you don't get to be uh, great at your job unless you're surrounded by great people. And I yeah. was really fortunate in most, well, 99% of my postings, I work with some fantastic people. Yeah. Really can um, mm. yeah. so do people.
0: Yeah. Do you miss it? Do you miss it at all?
1: Oh, God. I miss the excitement, the problem solving, the rush of adrenaline, the nicking people, the satisfaction. I don't miss the politics. I don't Mm. miss the criticism. Um, But I do it all over again.
0: Mm. Oh, bless you. Well, I think by any definition, you've had an unbelievable career. Unbelievable. And I... I really, really take my hat off to you. Um, you know, you've done clearly, you've done some really interesting, exciting stuff, but more importantly, you've probably, you know, saved the lives of countless people and prevented misery to many, many thousands, you know, along the way. So, so well done you. I really, uh, I really, you know, my goodness, um, you know, it's something that you can, you can feel really good about what you've done, you know, the whole of your life, really. I'm sure. And uh, you've got, have you ever thought of writing a book? Because I'm sure that you've got, you must have a book in you with all those stories.
1: There's, there's so many people out there doing it, and it's really nice of you to say that. But I was, you know, you get, there's a bit of luck attached to these things, and also, it's a team effort. There's not one person. You know, is pivotal in anything. You work as a team, and that mm. Met Police and the police family is about teamwork, and that's another thing I miss about it—being part of that team.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, listen, Annie, um, I've got to go, and the reason I've got to go is because I've got an I've got an eleven-month-old Springer Springer Spaniel here, <laughs> who, who who is um, uh, she's, she's she keeps on nudging at me, and I'm not sure she... what that means. I'm not sure what that means. She needs to go to the toilet or whether um but but one way or another it's not going to end well if I don't let her right but uh, I think we'd come (laughs) we'd come to a natural conclusion anyway but listen thanks ever so much I've I've really enjoyed our chat it's been fascinating and uh like I say well done and congratulations on your MBE and um and I wish you a very very long happy and healthy uh retirement doing whatever it is that you want to do for the rest of your life I suppose
1: yeah, well, that's very nice of you to say. So I'll be really hacked off if I don't live till I'm like 110.
0: <laughs> but, uh, it's oh, been nice yeah. to
1: speak, speak to you and uh, oh, look bless, with your, your books you. and your podcast. Yeah, and wow. uh, I just hope it came across well. You never know, do you?
0: Oh, it came across brilliantly. Listen, you're an absolute star. Thanks ever so much. Uh, God bless. And uh, I'll hopefully uh, have the opportunity to buy, a, buy you a a drink, or G or a glass of champagne, or whatever it is you're, uh, you you fancy at some point in All the right. future. Okay, All right, darling, you take it's care. Nice to talk to you. Hope Bye. you don't I'm,
1: hope you don't get a puddle on your carpet. <laughs> oh
0: no, 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 no! She's she's as giving you, just, she's giving me the hard stare at the moment.
1: As I say here, <laughs> hasta la próxima.
0: Besitos. <laughs> All right, darling. Bye.
1: he was often in our street we used to smile
0: and wave at him while walking on his beat but now we never see him it really makes us frown no longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town
2: oh. ooh, 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 ooh. you. Mm-hmm.